When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello there, welcome to another Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. Kind of churning out the podcast this week. We didn't have an Arscast Extra on Monday, but there was a podcast looking at the youth system. You can check that out on iTunes, on Acast, of course. Our Acast page is acast.com forward slash Arsblog. You can get all our archives there if you're not already subscribed to the show. But if you saw on Monday the tweet, the information that the BBC's David Ornstein sent out, it was one one which certainly got people talking about our summer, about the business that we did, a business that we didn't do, and the whole lot. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to talk to David about that? So that's exactly what I did. So I'm going to chat to David now about all the stuff that went on this summer between Oxlade-Chamberlain, Lucas Perez, uh, Alexis Sanchez, Skodran Mustafi, business in, business out, the manager, the board, the way they all operate together. I'm not going to talk too much in this intro because it's late night. It's now five past ten and You know, I'm tired. I need to go to bed at some stage, but let's get this podcast out for you this evening. This is me talking to David Ornstein. Hi, David. How are you? Good to talk to you. Andrew, very good to speak to you as always. And you, um, the, uh, the tweet you put out and obviously the information in it, was kind of like a microcosm of Arsenal's summer. There was uh, start to finish, uh, a lot of information in there, and I think there's a lot to process and a lot for people to get their heads around because it felt like what Arsenal needed to do this summer was relatively simple, as simple as, you know, Arsenal can make things. Uh, But, (laughs) you know, having won the Cup, it was to go out, it was to move some players on, it was to bring some players in, it was to make additions to the squad who could who could change the maybe the dynamic of a team from one that is essentially, as we see now, a cup team and one that can on its day perform at a very high level and win trophies against big teams because along the way in the three FA Cups, Arsenal have beaten most of the biggest teams in England in those three mm-hmm. campaigns. But it's doing it over the course of a Premier League campaign that, that seems to be beyond them. It, it started pretty well because going out and breaking the club transfer record in early July for Alexandra Lacazette and signing uh, Kolasinac, uh, say Kolasinac from Schalke on a free transfer, it started in a very pos- uh, positive way. Yeah, it really did. And I think this was a summer that even the sort of ardent cynics among the Arsenal support base and media Um, would have felt things might have been changing because those two signings um, really did get things off on a positive foot. Kolasinac was done uh, before the end of last season, announced uh, pretty soon after the end of the season, and he was in place for the start of pre-season. 
Lacazette was done fairly swiftly if we look back on it now and effectively. And it was an example of Arsenal being able to um, to conduct a transfer as you should really um, in a way that other clubs, uh, you think of Chelsea in particular, over the years have done fairly ruthlessly. And the fee in the region of £50 million looks fairly shrewd now, around the same that Manchester City paid for Kyle Walker. Mm. Uh, and the early suggestions are that Lacazette's going to do very well. Um, they also bought staff in off the field in terms of um, the uh, former Liverpool um, medical man, uh, Darren... Burgess. His name escapes me, Burgess. Uh, and Hus Fami to help with the contractual situation. None of us know exactly sort of how much influence uh, he has had so far. Uh, I know he spent a lot of time with Dick Law and they're working very closely together. Um, but there was no sort of tangible impact on the summer's business. And, and many would say um, that was fairly understandable given that he's only just come in. Um, and the optimism was there for a really positive summer. Uh, unfortunately, the messages that were coming out of uh, numerous sources in and around the club once they had signed Lacazette and uh, contrary to reports that uh, Lamar was imminently next in through the door. Uh, the messages I was getting was that the interest in Lamar was absolutely concrete and they were hoping to make him their next signing, but it wasn't close um, at that point uh, because Monaco weren't interested in selling, although he had given indications, as I understand it, to Arsenal that he was prepared to join at that point. Um, what's, priority- what's your understanding? Sorry to cut across you. What's your understanding of stories of people uh, that have been going around that you know he'd visited the training ground and all that kind of stuff? Was that way off? I know nothing of that. Right. I'm not saying it's not true, mm-hmm. but it certainly has not been told to me by anybody. Right. Um, but I have seen those reports and I fully respect them, but I just can't uh, affirm Verify. them myself. But what I have been told reliably by a number of people is that he had told. Arsene Wenger that he wanted and was willing to join and prepared to at that point in time but clearly Monaco with their sort of fire sale um, typically for Arsenal you might say they went for the one player who uh, who wasn't available for transfer at that point in time anyway um, um, Well is it that he wasn't available for transfer at that time or that Arsenal didn't quite do enough to make him available for transfer because yeah. I think we've seen this summer that Monaco if the price is right and if the deal yeah. is right for them they're willing to sell I mean obviously the, the yeah. two players that came in at the start I think everybody knew that Arsenal were required or needed to sell some players or move some players off the wage bill in order to free up funds. And I think that's Mm. normal. Everybody understood that. And a lot of the focus on transfers at Arsenal Football Club is players who come in or players who don't come in. Um, But a lot of the focus is on the inward business. And I think maybe there's been a bit of a change this summer in the sense that people are focusing or looking a little more at the outgoing business or the lack of outgoing business and wondering why it is when other clubs are selling players for ridiculous amounts of money, Arsenal are yeah. struggling to move on, players that they don't want but still good, uh, solid professionals who could do a job and, and wondering why exactly that is. Yeah, it's a very good point. And the first part of your question is absolutely right. 
could Arsenal have pushed the boat out further? We've seen that Monaco have been a selling club. I think it was more, the, the point is more that Arsenal didn't have the funds available at that point in time. So they did have them after the sale of Oxlade-Chamberlain and the potential sale of Alexis Sanchez. Mm. They then had a bit of £92 million accepted. They didn't have the sort of money, uh, I'm told, whether it's true or not, you'll, you'll surely find out when the accounts are released. But at that point in time, to keep pushing the boat out, you may criticise Arsene Wenger for that, you know, go all the way, but we don't know how much was at his disposal and certainly from what we've seen of Arsenal in the in recent history they don't tend to push the boat out in the knowledge that they'll recoup some money in signing they don't sign before selling which many people believe they should do you know get the player in and and then make the sales yeah. um and in, in to, and and that's a debate and whether whether it's a it's something Arsenal could do um if they can then that would be a valid criticism in terms of your second point um, on shifting players out, I think, and you've seen uh, the club that springs to mind is Chelsea and how successful they've been with sales, how effective Marina Granovskaya has been in, in cutting a brilliant deal for them with so many uh, departures now. You think of the likes of Oscar, Ramirez, the list goes on. Uh, with Arsenal, I think it was fairly clear to people in the market, um, given how many agents I spoke to who had been informed and other clubs uh, knew of the players that Arsenal were willing to do business with. Uh, that was like Arsenal showing their hand in the game of poker. And so why would you bid high um, for the likes of uh, Wojciech Szczesny? Um, Olivier Giroud was a bit of a different case because clearly his mind wasn't made up. The likes of Kieran Gibbs, you're not going to offer big money for. Callum Chambers was was the subject of some very decent offers. Uh, uh, two bids in, in the £20 million region for him the night before transfer deadline day from Leicester City. Uh, Crystal Palace interested previously and they were quoted £27 million. So there were a couple of cases of probably Arsenal pricing players out of moves. Um, Lucas Perez was certainly one of them after the um, the enormous dispute he had with Arsenal over the shirt number and the offence he took from that. He was desperate to leave in a permanent deal. Did he really um, take but- a big offence at that, given that he had quite clearly stated he wanted to leave? Was that was that something that really upset him? He was absolutely fuming, and the people around him were too. Uh, he was, I think, informed by his mother or, or his family to <laughs> who, who had who had seen something on the. He he woke up to a number of phone calls and he didn't understand what had happened, whether he'd been sold or something. Rang his family back and they said, "Have you seen the Arsenal website?" He then went, went on and, and saw that um, Lacazette had been given the number nine shirt. He tried to contact the relevant people at Arsenal who were flying to um, uh, Australia. To, I think time. it was Australia at the yeah. time. When they landed, apparently he was then informed um, that the decision had been made while midair over India, I think, um, <laughs> at that point in time. And um, and later, as we know, I think Arsene Wenger apologised to him over it. There are other players at the club who have um, wanted shirt numbers of players who have been out on loan. Mm-hmm. And they've been told by Arsene Wenger, by others among the 
hierarchy, marketing bosses, etc., commercial bosses, that um, that it's not possible because, especially Arsene Wenger, who calls the shots, because those are Arsenal players and, and they may come back. So that's the message that's been relayed to players who uh, who are at the club uh, about about the shirt numbers of players who are out on loan. This was a player who was not on loan. He was at the club. He woke up to find that his shirt number had been taken with no prior warning, no consultation. He probably wouldn't have been too happy if, if they had consulted him, but at least they he would have understood. Yeah. As my understanding is, he would have accepted it um, reluctantly, but he wasn't even consulted. Um, and by that point... Uh, he was in the process or had already uh, moved into temporary accommodation, a hotel in preparation to be leaving. You're right. He did. He did want to leave to play regular football. It obviously hasn't been a, wasn't a good first season for him. Um, And so he wanted to leave permanently, but the, the asking price, but you could support Arsenal on this and say that they're right to ask for a high price when they signed him for what, 17 million pounds. Yeah. But no, no clubs were willing to pay that knowing that they, knowing that, um, Arsenal wanted to sell him and, and that he wanted out. Although Arsene Wenger had indicated to him that he wanted him to stay when he thought Giroud was going to leave. And you <laughs> never knew over Sanchez what would happen at the end, yeah. despite Wenger's public comments on that one. Mm. And so, but as soon as Giroud was staying, uh, San, uh, Perez was allowed to leave. However, yeah, it ended up being on loan. So oh when, when clubs knew Arsenal's hand in, in negotiations, they were never going to offer them big money. Yeah, I mean the Paris thing is very interesting. I do wonder if his des- his desire to go to Deportivo and only Deportivo is in some way related to the the offence he took at the shirt number thing because there yeah. were offers we know from from other Premier League clubs and there were clubs in in Spain who were interested as well. Levante and I think Sevilla, maybe Malaga were were interested, but he was determined only to go to um, uh, and to, not, to Deportivo. And, and he, he kind of Let- go on. Let's not hide behind the fact that he wanted to go home. Yeah. Um, but he w- he he felt it was deeply disrespectful what they did over the shirt number. Right. And I think that only um, made him more determined to make that mm. move back to Depot. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I think it does raise questions, though, doesn't it, about how. <sighs> how strong Arsenal are in the market when it comes to negotiating. And they will, uh, I think clubs know that in a situation like uh, Perez is that they will ultimately um, do perhaps what's the right thing for the player over what's the right thing for the football club. We've seen instances in the past where Arsenal have accepted lower bids. I mean, the Kieran Mm. Gibbs thing, you know, an England international, sure he's been on the sidelines a little bit over the last couple of years, but 27 years of age. Uh, Watford or, or West Brom had initially had a bid of £10 million turned down and then that didn't work out. Watford came back in, Arsenal accepted £7 million, so West Brom came back with £7 million. It's like Arsenal negotiating themselves out of £3 million. Yeah, and also Galatasaray had had a bid accepted. Uh, Gibbs failed to agree personal terms um, and it is since... I think the sense was that he he wasn't too keen on that move anyway. So then the Watford situation um, advanced and, and then finally West Brom. Um, I think Arsenal shouldn't take an enormous amount of um, criticism for the Gibbs situation because um, I think he procrastinated over that one and he was also, of mm. course, considering staying for the final year of his contract as he was entitled to do and then leave on a free transfer. As you say, it'd only be, what, 28 uh, at the end of this season, um, 
so yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think Arsenal by the end were just keen for the deal to get done because they needed another squad place. But it was another one that, you know, whether it was Arsenal's fault or the players' fault, it was another um, situation that for Arsenal turned into a saga. And really, there have been too many of them clogging up the summer, taking the focus away, because it's a small team of negotiators. Uh, Previously, as as far as we know, it's really only been Dick Law. And now, of course, he's got um, Husfami with him. But... That's not a squad of, of people working on contracts for departures, for arrivals, for, you know, yeah. these people work on the deals for younger players as well. So that's clogging up the summer and, and it is affecting Arsenal's ability to work on incomings. Mm-hmm. And really, as I understood it, the incomings weren't possible until the, the f- f- uh, those futures had been sorted. Mm, it's almost as if a director of football type appointment might be a good idea for Arsenal, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, we know the manager's yeah, views on that one. We and, uh, ser- we he's the do. only man who matters. Well, yeah, at this moment in time, we, you spoke about sagas, and I think the Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain thing turned into a saga. How much background do we have on this exactly? Because what was interesting towards the the end part of last season was the fact that Oxlade-Chamberlain Chamberlain's agents, I assume, were briefing members of the press to say that he hadn't yet been offered a new contract by Arsenal. And that because of this, even if he was offered one at this point, he wouldn't accept it because, you know, they obviously felt that Arsenal didn't rate him that highly. Arsene Wenger then spent the end of last season and the whole summer talking about what a big talent Oxlade-Chamberlain was and what he was going to be. He was going to be the the big English player that everyone would talk about over the next three or four years, how it would do big damage to the club if he were allowed to leave or if he left. And... Ultimately, he's gone. Um, Why, if he was viewed as such a big talent and had such potential, was he not offered a contract earlier? And if it became clear that he was going to leave, and we assume that happened before that game at Anfield, what was he doing on the pitch that day? Well, you'll know that Jonathan Northcroft uh, wrote an excellent uh, piece yeah. in the Sunday Times and touched upon the Oxlade Chamberlain situation, which is quite incredible, really, because at the beginning of the summer, and again, you may say typical Arsenal, um, they offered a, a a relatively small pay rise on what was a fairly meagre salary by modern footballer standards and certainly uh, an international and one of the key players at Arsenal. Um, and so that was treated by Oxlade Chamberlain's camp as derisory that first offer, which I think Johnny Northcroft reports at about eighty thousand pounds, up from sixty odd mm. uh, per week. So a pittance, that, a pittance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in relative terms, yeah, I guess yeah. you're right. The, um, the, so, so we moved we moved on with the summer, but that clearly got things off on the wrong note. Um, and I'm not sure there was from his camp's point of view. I'm not sure there was a way back from, from there on. I'm really don't know from his point of view, from his personal point of view, uh, what the situation was. What I do know is that Oxlade Chamberlain, um, (laughs) about a lot of things in life, um, struggles to make up his mind and, 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 uh, is quite indecisive. You may say that is reflected on the pitch as well. Um, but, uh, so, so, so as the, as the window drew, drew to a close, um, he clearly needed to go and sort this situation out, but I don't. And it, he did have conversations with with Wenger, but 
it never really came to a head. Um, and in the meantime, this huge offer of a new contract came from Arsenal. Um, but in Oxlade Chamberlain's mind, by that point, and uh, others have comment, other journalists have have made this point in recent days. It, it didn't matter. He wasn't signing. Uh, he wasn't. He didn't want to stay for the for the money. He wanted, and fair play to him, he wanted to make his decision on on football grounds. Mm. And uh, we would all say he's not progressed to the level, whether it's his fault or the club's fault or a bit of both, to the level that was expected of him and what appears to be um, uh, within his armoury, you know, in in his potential. And um, therefore, it came to it came to a head where he finally plucked up the courage to tell the club. Well, to, 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 so he he came into training and was told to go to see Wenger. Uh, and in that meeting, he finally told Wenger that he wanted to um, reject that contract offer and move on to pastures new, which. I don't think Wenger took well in the slightest, um, mm. very badly indeed, and he he let San, uh, he let Oxley Chamberlain know about that and in then, this and meeting. And then picked him against Liverpool. And then picked him against Liverpool, which, <laughs> but perhaps you know when when you're, well, I mean, I, I think in that meeting Wenger, of course, is a very intelligent man. He and and he's worked with thousands of footballers and dealt with more tense situations than this in the past. He he said to Oxlade Chamberlain. I think he accepted he accepted it by the end of the meeting and said, "Well, you you need to understand that now this is on Arsenal's terms, and we need to get the right deal for us if if you're going to leave." So I don't think in Wenger's sort of purist mind he had totally resigned himself to Oxlade Chamberlain going. And what we'll never know is whether Wenger's comments were in in the press conferences all summer were designed as a tactic to get Oxlade Chamberlain to sign a new contract and really build the team around him or to drive his price up because I maintain that he was always the most realistic of the three to leave. Um, Which some will say is a bit of a shame given his age, given... uh, his homegrown status, but I do think I do think that was a okay. case. There, there, there's been uh, a view inside Arsenal for quite a long time that he just doesn't offer the end product, um, and whether or not Wenger agreed with that. I mean, I, th- I think my understanding is that Wenger told Oxley Chamberlain that this is one of, or perhaps the only, but certainly one of the only examples in his 21 years at Arsenal of a, a player who the club wanted to go. And Wenger wanted to stay, and I think he told that to Oxlade Chamberlain, but it, it didn't really make a difference. It, it's more telling of the of the relations between Arsenal and the club at the moment, and mm. um, that they weren't singing from the same hymn sheet on Oxlade Chamberlain. But again, whether the co- public comments were designed to convince Oxlade Chamberlain to sign or to drive his price up because he knew the club wanted to sell. Uh, I really don't know. And then, yeah, to play him at Liverpool, maybe it ties into all of that. Maybe it was a final play from Wenger to convince him to stay, or it was, um, or it was a case of um, <laughs> hoping one more one one more good performance will will drive his price even higher, or tell potential suitors that we're genuine about staying, him staying here. Yeah. We're going to, we're playing him. And if you want him, you're going to have to pay mega bucks. Right. Well, we might come back to Arsene Wenger's relationship with the club, because that's obviously a very interesting thing. A very, inter- just, just one more, just one more thing on Oxford yeah. Chamberlain. I, I, I think I, I don't see many people saying that the deal wasn't fairly good for all parties. 
Um, Liverpool got a yeah. player they want. Oxlade Chamberlain got a move he wanted, and Arsenal got very decent money for a player who has not fulfilled his potential, had one year left on his contract and was unwilling to sign a new one, so would have left for a free in a year's time. Sure. Uh, look, I am so, I was behind it wherever he was going at, at this point, whether it was Chelsea or whether it was Liverpool. I thought, you know, for Arsenal, the right deal was to take the money. Obviously, I thought, well, I thought, I hoped that they might reinvest it back into the squad, but hey, that's, uh, that's, that's on me, that particular one. But when we talk about that, and we'll come, as I said, we'll come back to Arsene Wenger's relationship with, with the club and certainly what's going on internally, but... The other big one was obviously Alexis Sanchez. And throughout the summer, Arsenal said quite categorically that they were not going to sell. And I have to say that very early on, I was right behind this as well, accepting the fact that I thought Alexis would leave on a free next season. I thought what we wanted to do on the pitch um, next year was was going to be much easier. Well, not much easier, but we'd be better served with Sanchez on the pitch than with money in the bank because again you have to wonder will will Arsenal reinvest that money and I thought the position was great I thought the way that the I thought the consistency was really great I thought the the message was strong right throughout the summer we are not going to sell him he's going to stay he's going to respect that says Arsene Wenger and then we have this post Anfield flip-flop or certainly in the final week of the transfer window it was like they just kind of went, shit, let's, uh, let's see what we can do and see if we can sell it, even if it was to, to perhaps try and bring in Thomas Lamar. How can you go from a, a, a situation where you're saying absolutely not to then opening up lines of communication with Manchester City, of all clubs? I mean, again, is that, is that in some way down to the relationship between Wenger and the club? Is, has that played a part in that? I think the Sanchez situation was, frankly a complete mess mm. um again not not of arsenal's making necessarily not of sanchez making necessarily just the whole thing um mixed together to make a sort of potent concoction i think uh the only reason why i doubt slightly and i stand to be corrected on this i've got no problem if if it's not the case but the only reason that i slightly doubt that Arsenal were steadfast in their their decision not to sell him was because when Lucas Perez wanted to leave and Wenger told him, or people at the club hierarchy told him that they wanted him to stay, the message relayed to Lucas Perez was that we don't know what's happening with Olivier Giroud and Alexis Sanchez. Mm. And so... And that was definitely said to Lucas Perez. And so if they they were saying at that point, relatively early in the summer, or uh, over a month ago now, well over a month ago, that they didn't know what was happening with Alexis Sanchez, that says to me that it was always possible that Sanchez could go. The message coming from the club was always that we've got no appetite to sell and he's not for sale. But in football, you never know. And that's why these stories persisted, because there was always a feeling when you spoke to people at the club and around the club, influential people, that if the offer was right, then of course they would have sold. But of course, they would have had to have a replacement as well. That was never, I don't think, the the, the option of straight cash, unless it was incredible money right at the start or, or early in the window, 
unless that happened, if it was anywhere near towards the end, it would have they would have had to have a, have a replacement in place. And you know, we have a player here who was desperate to leave, um, an agent who was desperate to move him on, um, a club who. I'm being a bit cynical here. They had to say what they said. You know, it would have been pandemonium if if they had started sort of giving off messages that he was going to leave. One, for what it w- would have done for their reputation and the way they're portrayed by the media and the fans. And secondly, because of what it would have said to potential suitors. You know, they had to play the strong hand in this Arsenal. Now, clearly, they would have preferred him to go to Bayern Munich, who reports suggest had a agreement with him on personal terms um but that one collapsed um mm. then Paris Saint-Germain as Arsene Wenger said himself they couldn't get Sanchez so they went for Neymar so clearly if the Neymar one hadn't happened that would have been a strong possibility and it was left with Manchester City or bust now I know Alexis Sanchez the one thing um holding in Arsenal's favor is that he loves London and it made me suspect for a time why Chelsea hadn't come in for him with big money and, and he would have fitted in perfectly to their team. But he loves London. And um, really, I think the, the lure of City was, was Guardiola and, and, and the, and the um, knowledge that he would have been competing for trophies, which in the Champions League, Arsenal won't, won't be there this season. And in the Premier League, the way it's looking... Manchester City are going to be a far more um, mm. likely contender for the title. Uh, and so you were left with this complete mess, a public message from Arsenal that deep down, I'm not sure how genuine it was, although it's obviously being portrayed quite rightly now as a victory because they've held on to a very good player who, if he if his head's right and his body's right, should have a fantastic season ahead of the World Cup. He won't want to have a disappointing season. Um, but they knew they knew what was going to happen if they kept him. There's the potential for negotiations with an overseas club in January. His mind could be elsewhere as the summer approaches. Um, but also a mess from his point of view. He was He was going to be back late from the Confederations Cup. He was going to uh, then, he then had his injury and it led to a situation where if Arsenal were genuine in their um, resolve not to sell all summer, I don't think they would have gone to the table in the final 24, 48 hours. Yeah. It's as simple as that. And, yeah. and well. the fact that they did suggested to me that they're deep down all along. They knew they were going to try and um, if, if City were going to come back in, they were going to try and cut a late deal and find his replacement. Yeah, I mean, I, get, I see that point of view. I just wonder if in the wake of the defeat to Stoke, in the wake of the performance at Anfield, that there was some kind of flip-flopping went on, that panic set in at Arsenal, as it has a tendency to do towards the end of a transfer window. Uh, We've seen big defeats precipitate trolley dashes (laughs) and and decisions before. You know, you think back to what happened. Well, exactly. You know, that, that particular summer was not well managed and it wasn't simply because... Uh, of Cesc Fabregas and Samir Nasri leaving late, it was because Arsenal did not manage those situations. When they knew, in reality, that both players were going to go, you know, they were delayed and then all, all that stuff happened. So I'm, I'm not necessarily convinced that what happened with Alexis wasn't a last-minute change of heart. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how, how yeah. he gets on. Um, one of the other things I want to ask you about, something that you wrote in your tweet, was that... Um, 
Shkodran Mustafi asked to leave the club, and Arsenal seemed willing to let him leave the club, despite the fact that, as of this moment, they've been playing a three-at-the-back uh, formation where centre-halves are valuable, and certainly a £35 million centre-half that you just bought less than 12 months ago would appear to be a valuable uh, player when you go into a new season. Have we any idea why he wanted to leave? And I guess if Arsenal were willing to let him go, it was because... A, they either thought they could replace him with somebody better, or B, they're just not convinced by the player that he is. Well, anyone who watched Arsenal last season will note that for the first part of the season, he made a fairly uh, strong impression. I think he got injured around the December time, wasn't it around the defeats at Everton and Manchester City? Maybe earlier. Yeah, against Um, Stoke, actually, I think. That's right, and... Up until that point, I think Arsenal as a club and, and a fan base had been very impressed by him. When he came back, I seem to remember it was Bournemouth away. Um, he had a terrible game and that seemed to set the tone for him. He never really rediscovered his form. Um, and so come the end of the season, I don't think Arsenal were entirely impressed with him. This is a player they played paid what 35 million pounds for mm-hmm. which last summer you know I, th- I think you know this summer that would have equated to well over 40 um possibly around the 50 mark so so they i think they were disappointed with him meanwhile um he had some issues off the pitch that um i think uh, left him in a position that uh he and his partner decided that it would be it, it'd be best to move. He'd, he'd had a baby. I don't think he, he'd recently had a baby. Sorry. Um, I don't think his wife who's from Switzerland has her family around her here. And so I think Italy, that all Italy was attractive to, then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that all contributed to a decision to move to Italy, which obviously would have been better geographically. And he's played there before. Um, and I think it was a kind of, genuinely mutual thing he was unhappy uh, i think he presented it more as sporting reasons that he you know the mentality in the club i do know he'd clashed with some players in training it's not at all surprising at any club that this, these things happen all the time but you know the sort of character mustafi is he's very determined he gives everything in training and in matches and i've heard stories again not exceptional at any club that he's squared up to couple of players in training um so i think he presented it more as a sporting decision from his point of view but i think it was a combination of perhaps that but also the the personal off-field issues and then arsenal um who of course didn't make the first move to sell him as i understand it weren't weren't not at all um displeased is the wrong word but yeah they, they, they were willing to let it happen and it was all down to getting a replacement their replacement of choice was Johnny Evans uh, they relayed that to West Brom during the final week of the transfer window then they followed that up with an offer it was never likely to happen I, I wrote the sort of Venn diagram on the BBC Sport website of what would have to happen for Evans to leave and it, it was really it all really pointed to Evans going to Man City and Mangala who West Brom wanted as their first choice replacement to West Brom and um, that that all fell apart Arsenal were always unlucky 
outside candidates because West Brom still would have needed to replace Johnny Evans. Yeah. And as I understand it, West Brom only had Mangler in their sights because the only other defender that fitted the bill on the market towards the end of the window was Mamadou Sacco and they weren't prepared to meet the transfer fee or his salary demands. West Brom sources told me that Arsenal offered them Mustafi when <laughs> when they were inquiring about Evans, but that wouldn't have really solved anything from Mustafi's point of view, no. um, given he wanted to leave England. And so, um, yeah, uh, without Evans, they, they may well have had other options, Arsenal, but none that I heard of excuse me, or found out about. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it meant Mustafi had to stay. And um, that wasn't ideal. You know, you had two players on the pitch at um, Anfield who wanted to leave. Uh, one player who's out, and main player in Ozil, who's out of contract next summer. A player on the bench who wanted to leave and the club wanted him to leave. And all bar Oxlade-Chamberlain stay. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Uh, the final one I want to talk about just on the transfer front is about the central midfield situation. And you wrote that uh, this wasn't a priority at the beginning of the window, but towards the end of the window, Arsene Wenger decided that perhaps, perhaps it might be an idea to add somebody to this very important area of the pitch. Again, to me, it speaks of the the panic that sets in where things don't go as well as uh, are expected and uh, things that look obvious to, to us from the outside. And I, I, I accept that we don't get the full picture of what goes on on the training ground and what, what way the manager views the potential and qualities and attributes of all his various central midfield players. But to me, it looked like it was one of the most important areas for Arsenal to cover this summer. Um <sighs> to make that decision or to come to that realization very late in the window is uh, is staggering yeah it is and it's quite clear to everybody knows it that Arsene Wenger doesn't have the sort of support and structure that he once did and the, and the sort of kick up the backside that David Dean provided um, and it's I mean Arsenal have made some brilliant signings since Dean left but Certain, and as you wrote in, in your blog today, the, the, the market and, and the climate, the environment has changed in football. So we don't know how it would have worked with Dean now, but it's not an ideal setup. We can't exonerate Wenger here because he uh, changes his mind regularly, like the wind, some may say. Um, he procrastinates and dallies on, on decisions and, um, and that's what leads to a lot of these problems. It's certainly a setup that uh, is made a mockery of by the setups at places like Manchester City and Chelsea um, in terms of their transfer operations. And so um, 
yeah, the priorities were the left side of defence and the centre forward. Um, some would have viewed central midfield as a priority ahead of centre forward this summer. Um, others will say, why couldn't they have been dual priorities? Yeah. Um, but they they were very happy with with the the left fullback position and the striker signing which no nobody's really doubted um but yeah central midfield which you've written about a lot was never really on the agenda and the first two games it was the most glaring uh problem in arsenal's uh first three games sorry in in arsenal's team um leicester obviously it wasn't highlighted afterwards but but certainly at stoke um with the with the um, Xhaka mistake and Aaron Ramsey in the number nine position, and then at Liverpool all match long, it, it I mean it was I think Wenger, by Anfield Wenger had already decided that he would like to try and do something if he could for central midfield. Um, but this sort of shows where Arsenal are in the market at the moment and um, how they stack up compared to other clubs. It was late in the day. A lot would have needed to happen. I don't know who their targets were. They were obviously linked with Seri for, for much of the summer. Um, but too little, too late. And that, I think that's a fairly familiar story. And the <laughs> fact that it was Arsene who decided that he wanted that sort of... Uh, it, it, it sort of it cuts him as a quite a lonely figure, doesn't it? Yeah, that he kind of wanted he wanted that. It, it wasn't in the plan. Um, you know, Arsenal are not incompetent. They, as I said, they've pulled off some some very good signings. Um, they their scouting operation, sadly, is is um, not thought highly of. Uh, from sources I speak to across the game. Um, their negotiation tactics are not highly thought of from people I speak to across the game. Um, and late decisions, given everything we know about Arsenal and, and to those two points mentioned, um, mean that signing somebody that late in, in such an important position, and it would have needed to be an upgrade on on the midfielders they've got, was almost certainly doomed to failure. Hmm. You talk about the manager um, being in a lonely position and perhaps it's it's not ideal given what happened uh, during the summer and you talked about his relationship with people at the club. It seems that his relationship with Stan Kroenke at the very least is solid because Kroenke is the one who makes the decisions at the end of the day. He can... He can overrule everybody else because he is the man who holds the majority of the shares of Arsenal Football Club. But, uh, you know, to to work effectively as a manager, you need support. You need the right people around you. Arsenal have an awful lot of staff. You've got to ask if they have enough of the right staff when we talk about our transfer business, both in and out, uh, and doing that as quickly and efficiently as as we possibly can and getting the best deals for Arsenal as we can. But also, when it comes to making transfers, you know, Arsene is there, Dick Law is there, Ivan Gazidis is involved as well, and I think it would be fair to say that the relationship between himself and Arsene Wenger is probably not as good as you would like it to be. I'm going very BBC diplomatic here on the day. <laughs> not as good as you would like it to be uh, between the manager and the chief executive of a top-level football club. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's perfect. Um, equally, I don't think it's as bad as some people make out. Um, they get on personally very well meet for lunch on Fridays and but that's obviously different to business and for instance during those lunch meetings the contract of Arsene Wenger was very very rarely if at all mentioned 
towards the end of last season it was it was almost the elephant in the room and a bit a little bit taboo um and as we know what the sort of mess that turned into i i, th- I think those who know arson well and some of them who are close to him um would certainly say he doesn't have the support and structure around him to to succeed in the in the way that he and the club wish um there is probably some feeling around him from people knowing well that he shouldn't have signed that contract mm. and that things are going to go disappointingly this season. Obviously, we don't know how the season will pan out and, and there's a lot of hysteria when results are bad and that comes off the back of missing out on the Champions League and things can change incredibly quickly and there's nothing to say Arsenal won't won't go on the sort of run that they went on at this stage last season or in which they finished last season in but they are in a very difficult position and nobody can say they weren't warned at the club or in Arsene Beng- among Arsene and his inner circle of what might have happened if results had turned had he signed the new contract. It was discussed at length by people like us and I'm sure by them. Um, I know by them, you know, what the atmosphere would be like. Mm. That was a key decision that we reported at the time. Arsene, one, the, the, the key thing holding him back and creating the hesitation, which he's since spoken about, was the the fan and and the reaction of of the people because you know Arsene is an Arsenal supporter he lives in in London he sees supporters all the time um he's affected by results and he talks about that all the time it hurts him when he doesn't make people happy and that was a key determining factor and we all knew that when results went badly um the atmosphere among the fan base and the media would would turn quicker than ever and we knew it had the potential to be febrile early on i don't think anybody expected it to be this early and there's nothing to say that it as i said it won't turn around um but it it makes for it makes for a very unsatisfactory situation yeah i mean it feels you know certainly to me and i know i've written about it quite a lot that it feels like from the top there is a lack of direction um you know the people who own football clubs should i think fairly um decisively um make it known what they want to do with with the football club that they own and it's very difficult despite what we hear occasionally from stan Kroenke that he's hungry for success that he's hungry for trophies that he wants his sports teams to win we look at the record of his sports teams in america and they are mediocre to say the least. He Mm. presides over this kind of mediocrity. Once the money's coming in, he feels, well, look, this is is relatively successful. This is why I'm here. The overall value of the club is increasing. The value of the property is increasing. The value of the Premier League is increasing. So he's not necessarily feeling any of the pressure, but nor is he putting any of that pressure downwards on people below him. That's Ivan Gazidis. That's Arsene Wenger. And I thought there was something quite telling in what you wrote where you said he's hungry, desperate and hungrier than ever to win trophies, but there's no hiding the fact that he will not be injecting a penny of his own wealth to assist that particular quest. The landscape of football, as we spoke about a little bit earlier, it has changed. The self-sustainable model that I think at the time when Arsenal went down that path was A, brave and hugely admirable, but 
it has changed. Football has changed. If you want to be competitive, if you if you want to be truly uh, up there with the best clubs, you've got to do more than what Arsenal are doing at this moment in time. And and what Stan Kroenke has done is. Uh, buy a lot of Arsenal shares and the only money that has exchanged hands between him and the club are the um, administration fees uh, that he has uh, taken out of the club for a couple of years and then stopped doing it because the reaction was so bad. He hasn't put a penny in and Arsenal are in this amazing situation. Incredible. Where you have two of the wealthiest men in the world, two billionaires, Stan Kroenke and Ali Sharuzmanov, and I'm not necessarily saying I prefer one over the other. To me, I would rather neither were involved in Arsenal uh, because of the way that they operate. But they're two ex- extraordinarily wealthy men, and not one penny of their wealth has ever been invested into the football team. And that's a club decision. Yeah, which, I get it. Uh, I get it. Yeah. But but that so that's a club decision which um would be very interesting to see whether that will be reconsidered because there is no getting away from the fact and you just made the point very eloquently that you have no choice but to adapt in the modern game adapt or die and the money coming in you know arsenal are, are very could say noble ethical uh, admirable in the way that they operate they they weren't going to risk um, getting themselves into the N'Golo Kante uh, race because of the fee that his agent was demanding and the potential repercussions if deals like that, I'm not saying that one, would ever be investigated. Arsenal try to do things the right way. Uh, Perhaps you could say they don't play the game well enough. Um, And that extends to the ownership, I think. They've got a, a... massive decision on their hands now because um the way it looks trying to compete with the biggest clubs in europe and the world with a self-sustainable model and arsenal's relatively meager revenues compared to the clubs they aim to compete with is a massive problem Mm. um i i can't I, I really cannot see um, them them shifting from from their their stated approach, but um, uh, it, it it leaves them with it leaves them with the very realistic uh, prospect of either treading water or going backwards on the pitch. I don't think anybody would say that they've got a chance of really mixing it with the best, which, as you quoted in your, your blog today, uh, Ivan Gazidis, when the um, the most recent uh, commercial deals were struck for the Puma kit, and so, sorry, the, when when Arsenal moved from Nike to Puma, and, were, and they, when they renewed with Emirates, he he said that that Arsenal that those deals should put Arsenal on a level to complete compete with Bayern Munich, mm. and they've fallen they've fallen staggeringly behind those levels, not just of Bayern Munich, but Ma- Manchester United, Real Madrid, the list goes on. Um, so that that's something that they need to address urgently. I'm not going to profess to know anything about Stan Kroenke. Uh, a journalist like Jeremy Wilson is is, the, is your best bet on that. And um, it's interesting that we know so little. We seem to know less about him than even the likes of, of Abramovich and, and the Glazers, uh, which which is strange given Arsenal are a club who do speak to the media more than those clubs from hierarchy level. For all the criticism that Ivan Gazidis gets, he speaks far more than any of the chief executives at any of the other leading Premier League clubs, um, but 
it's telling that Arsene Wenger met with Stan Kroenke and that was the determining factor in his decision to sign. He didn't want to sign that new contract in those days after the FA Cup final if until he had met with Stan. And, and it shows the power that Stan wields, yet he leaves the the running of the club entirely to Ivan Gazidis. Now, I know that his son Josh has, has sort of, uh, at least within, within the club, should have shown his influence and his interest and, and wants to be kept abreast of things. And of course, he's either there in person or, or uh, present by communication links in, in board meetings. Uh, he, he's young and very enthusiastic about the club. But I don't think he wants to tread on his father's toes and and be be uh, taking seem to be taking the reins while his father is the owner. Whether yeah. it will be passed down to him one day is an interesting point in itself, and whether things might change if if Josh Kroenke was was in charge, who who knows? But yeah, for for for, for Wenger and, uh, and Kroenke to have such a crucial uh, have such crucial power over. Over, uh, over the future and, and the direction of the club, it makes it very strange that everything is is then is then delegated down and um, yeah. the evidence of what we've seen. Uh, Ivan Gazidis is a very competent um, operator. You know, he wouldn't be appointed to UEFA's executive committee today if he wasn't. But clearly, um, he doesn't pull the strings. You know, he's the day-to-day uh, sort of. Uh, operations manager, but the people that pull the strings are Stan Kroenke and Ivan Gazidis. And despite all the speculation about whether Wenger's new contract would mean some power being taken away from him, to the contrary, you know, Wenger signing a new contract meant that he remained in sole control and he would not have signed that new contract if anything was going to change. And perhaps that's why his last meeting before signing that contract was with Kroenke to re- reassure him mm. of that. What, what we about, know that the board was split on his decision to sign, but that meant nothing because they weren't the determining factor. What about the uh, leaving aside that situation? Because I think Wenger and having control of the football side of things is something we're all accustomed to. But I think Gazidis mm. then... Uh, is is presiding over the business side of yeah. the club. And it would be fair to say that things on that front are not as good as they should be, that the commercial yeah. revenues, the marketing revenues, all of those things that he does have the the responsibility for are not growing in the way that they should. And, is you know, I think the we've seen like a readjustment of our ambitions as a football club when we talk about uh, how Leicester City are an example of how you can win things without spending big, and it is an example, but it's not—it's not like a plan. It's not a model. It was a, an amazing, incredible, brilliant thing for Leicester City Football Club, but essentially uh, a fluke, a once-in-a-lifetime thing that we'll never see again. So it, it's hard to understand why this football club, whose um, ambition was when it moved from Highbury to the Emirates was to compete with Bayern Munich. It was to compete with the biggest clubs in Europe, even accepting the fact that the landscape has changed to now sort of throw our lot in with the likes of Leicester. And I don't mean to cast aspersions on clubs like Atletico Madrid or Borussia Dortmund, who just uh, perhaps in terms of stature are a, a bit more like Arsenal than the other gigantic clubs in Europe. I think, uh, you know, I would accept that. But it just feels unambitious to to all of a sudden 
say, well, we want to be this, but now, you know, we'll, we'll go this way and see w- what happens there. To me, it just, it's a bit sad to see what's happened, that, that the the progress that was made, if you want to call it progress, from moving from 38,000 hybrid to 60,000 Emirates, you know, to a stadium that was custom built for modern football, to now just sort of accept it without really trying as hard as, it, as we could um, to, to, to get to that level, even if we're never going to be stature-wise a Real Madrid, a Barcelona, we understand that. But on the football pitch, the, the resources are there for Arsenal to build a better team than the one they have. Yeah, and I think the Leicester City comment is indicative of the sort of scattered thinking, I think, at Arsenal. And I don't don't mean it in a derogatory way, but also an element of desperation. Arsenal are desperate to win while knowing they can't compete financially with the likes of Manchester United, Manchester City, and then around Europe, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Barcelona. Um, I've also heard Atletico Madrid mentioned a lot by people at Arsenal. The triumph of the collective around the time that Spain were winning major trophies how it didn't need to be individual star names now i don't think that um that sort of talk has been coming from arsene wenger it's been coming from you know the board side of the club the likes of gazidis and and others and arsene i don't think would be comparing his team to leicester or atletico madrid he sees them Mm. being far superior he's a purist he believes in this squad but it's it's almost hypocritical that they were focusing on the likes of well talking referencing the likes of Leicester and Atletico Madrid while making star signings the likes of Sanchez and Ozil so what is it because you're making star signings and and you know you're telling people when Alexis Sanchez signed he he was told we'll be making star signings every every summer and building the squad up to challenging in Europe but then their feelings and they're letting it be known that they want to triumph not on the star names but as a collective Mm. and to me to me it looks like a lot of well-intentioned but muddled and muddied thinking yeah you know yeah (laughs) of course arsenal want to succeed of course i I don't know what stan Kroenke wants um I'm told he's desperate for Arsenal to win. I haven't read that piece in The Guardian yet, but I've, I've heard it is fantastic and, and is very disturbing from Arsenal's point of view in terms of the lack of success that Kroenke's had with his American franchises. But we're told that he's desperate to succeed and, and, and uh, he's more focused than ever before on doing so. Ivan Gazidis definitely wants to win. You know, if if you've heard him speak and and you've spoken to him in private, there's there's no doubting the ambition, but he's not the man who has the greatest influence there. And without question, we know Arsene Wenger is desperate to win. You know, there's there's no doubting that at all. But how desperate as a collective, and that comes from the very top, to, as you say, push right out to get the Lamars done at the time that you needed to get them done. And... It's really interesting that, you know, players like Sanchez and, and I heard similar things around the time of Robin Van Persie when he was considering leaving and, and the club and Arsene in particular were telling them and, and and laying out the vision and telling them about the sort of signings that would be made and the and the changes and the and the improvements that would be made. And yeah, there have been huge strides made at Arsenal off the pitch. We're talking training ground and academy because they've fallen behind on the academy side and mm. they're trying to revamp the scouting, etc. And they're investing big money. But is that money really going in the places that it's, in, it's needed in the immediate term where their rivals are investing? And look, let's 
let's be honest, Arsenal haven't had an unsuccessful period. Three FA Cups is the sort of um, is the sort of return that many clubs would would love. But we know it's all relative. Arsenal's expectations, the stated aims, the expectations of the fans are. Premier League, challenging for the Premier League and the Champions League. And if those are the um, areas that they said they wanted to be judged on, then they'll have to concede that they're failing. Mm. Yeah, as ever, um, talking a great game, but uh, yeah, the end results aren't quite what we would like. Um, David, I'm going to leave it there because I've taken up far too much of your time already. Thank you very much indeed for that. And, a pleasure, uh, Andrew, anytime. We'll, uh, we'll catch up with you during the season, I hope. Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed to David Ornstein. You can find him on Twitter at BBC Sport underscore David. And of course, read his stuff on the BBC Sport website. The story of a strange, crazy, difficult, crazy, mad, incomprehensible, crazy. Did I say crazy? Arsenal summer. A very, very Arsenal summer. I know what you did last summer, Arsenal. Not as much as you should have done. And not as quickly as you should have done it either. That wouldn't make a very good film. But anyway, look, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you got something from that. There's uh, plenty to sink your teeth into or your your ears into if you like. Uh, Remember, if you like the show, please give us a review on iTunes. It will be great. It really helps us, gets us up the iTunes charts. And I think we know at this moment uh, that really is all that's important in the world is getting as high up the iTunes charts as you possibly can. But no, please subscribe. Please share the podcast. Tell other people about it. Get them to listen. And that will be great too. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. I'll be back on Friday with a look ahead to the game against Bournemouth and who knows what the fuck else between now and then. So take it easy. Thanks for listening. Until the next one. Cheers. Bye bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.